Take a Bible, find John chapter 8. There are notes in the bulletin. You can follow along there if you'd like to do that. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John. We've spent the last several weeks looking at John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. And I just want to begin by reminding you sort of where we're at in the story of John's Gospel. John 7 and John 8 take place during the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a feast that was celebrated in the fall. It was an autumn celebration. They were giving thanks for the harvest. They had just brought in the fall harvest, and they were thanking God for another year of food and provision and abundance. They were also remembering the time that they were slaves in Egypt, and God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, the people lived in booths or tents or little tabernacles. God himself lived right in the middle of the camp in a large tabernacle. And the people during this celebration would travel to Jerusalem. Many, many pilgrims would flood the city and they would live in these little tents, these little tabernacles. And they were looking back, right? Giving thanks for the harvest, but looking back and thanking God for the rescue that he had worked in his life. This particular feast was not all celebration because at this particular feast, Jesus sort of kicks off the first sort of stage of his last fight with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. This is the beginning of his last fight. There had been lots of conflict up to this point already. If you've read through the Gospel of John, you know that already the Jewish leaders have decided Jesus needs to die. They've already reached that conclusion. There's been lots of back and forth, lots of conflict, but they've made the decision Jesus needs to die. In John 7 and John 8, this is the beginning of the last fight. And Jesus really, in these chapters, ratchets things up to a whole new level. The things that he says are very inflammatory, and it gets very, very heated. And we're picking up in the middle of a conversation. This is really a section if you were to look at one entire section, you would begin in about John 8, 12, and you would go through the end of the chapter. But we're breaking it up on Sundays. We're jumping in mid-conversation this morning. And I just want to remind you that in John 8, 33, you can look at it in your Bible. The Jewish leaders answered Jesus and they said, we are offspring of Abraham. Jesus had offered them freedom. He had talked about the truth, and he had said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And they immediately fired back at Jesus and said, what do you mean freedom? Why are you offering us freedom? We have never been slaves to anyone. And last week, we talked about how ridiculous that was on the face of it. The very feast that they were celebrating was a celebration that God brought them out of slavery, and they lived in tents after they came out of Egypt. And they fire back immediately, and they say, we have never been slaves of anyone. And Jesus talks about sin and slavery to sin. And in verse 37, Jesus acknowledges, he says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. I know that you sent off your ancestry.com kit, your 23andMe kit. And the results came back in the biggest circle, the biggest region was Abraham. I understand that. But then he pushes back. And he begins to say to them, if you were really, truly descendants of Abraham, not just genetically and biologically, but if you were truly descendants of Abraham, things would be going differently. He's acknowledging that they're connected to Abraham. He's also pushing back on that idea. The big idea is simple. 
The only way to know God as Father is to love God the Son. The only way for you or any person to know God as Father is to love God the Son. I just want to remind you of sort of the theme verse we've talked about so many Sundays, John 20. It's the theme verse of this entire gospel. It explains why John wrote this gospel. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. I wrote these things down that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John says, I wrote this book, I wrote this story down that you would believe the truth about Jesus. And that verse, while it encapsulates the entire gospel, it does beg the question 2,000 years later, what does it look like to believe in Jesus? Especially for people like you and me that live in the Bible Belt where so many people claim to believe in Jesus. What does it actually mean to believe in Jesus? And in these chapters, as Jesus talks with these Jewish leaders, and as this fight builds and becomes more heated, Jesus sheds light on what it means to truly believe. If you look at verse 31, Jesus talked about the idea of abiding. He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. What does it mean to believe? Well, it's not just a one-time decision. It's a living out of that decision. It's faith, not just that happens in a moment, but that continues through a lifetime. It's abiding in faith abiding in Jesus. That's what it means to believe. And in this passage, our passage this morning, Jesus expounds on that again. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. Right? Believing in Jesus is not just an inner, uh, intellectual exercise where someone like me stands up and presents all the facts before you and you sort of weigh the evidence and you say, yeah, okay, makes sense to me. I guess I'll sign up for that. The alternative sounds really bad, so I guess I'll, I'll go for it. Believing in Jesus certainly has an intellectual component, but there's also this heart component. Jesus says, if you know God as Father, you love me. That's part of what it means to believe in Jesus. And so we're, we're going to read the passage. We're going to start with a little bit of overlap from last week. John 8, verse 37 And we'll read through verse 47. So you follow along as we read the scripture. Jesus said, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, 
and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe in me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That's the word of God this morning. Let's pray. Father, again, we affirm our our faith, our belief. Your word is living and active. Father, we look at this story, this episode from the life of Jesus. We look at this conversation. We listen in on this debate, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear the truth. Father, give us eyes to see the truth. Give us hearts to receive it. Lord, we want to be people who believe. Lord, and we don't want to fall into the trap of of accepting what our culture says about faith and believing in Jesus. We want to think biblically. We want to listen to Jesus. We want to be people who abide in your word. We want to be people who love the Son and who know the Father. Lord, we ask that you would make these things true in our lives this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think for a moment as we begin. Has there ever been a time in your life where someone insulted you face to face? I just want you to think back on a situation like that. I'm not talking about third grade, okay? The playground where you sort of say silly things at people and and back and forth. I know that's a big deal when you're in the third grade, but it's not really what I have in mind right now. I'm thinking more of a a grown-up, mature situation. I'm not talking about your boss coming in and giving you constructive criticism that may not be all that constructive. That's That's not the sort of situation that I'm thinking about where a supervisor comes and says, hey, you need to to do this. That's not what I'm asking you to think about. I'm not talking about gossip. Sometimes people say things about you. They say it behind your back and word sort of gets back to you and you find out so-and-so said this about me. I'm not talking about that kind of situation even though that's painful and that's not fun. I'm not talking about an anonymous letter. As a pastor, every now and then you get a, a lovely anonymous letter and somebody's got some friendly things to say, but they're not there and you really don't care what they have to say if they don't sign their name on it, so you just kind of throw it away. I'm not talking about any of those things. I've experienced all those things, the, the playground teasing, the constructive criticism, the, uh, the gossip behind your back, the anonymous letter. I'm talking about have you ever been in a situation where you were looking somebody in the eye face to face? And they insulted you. Maybe your motives. Maybe your actions. Maybe your character. Maybe your family. Just right in front of you, a direct confrontation. My guess is that if you've experienced something like that, you can remember it right now very vividly. You can probably remember where you were and you remember what was happening and you might remember who was there. My guess is that you can even remember the physical response you had in that moment. Maybe you remember my my face got flush and I could feel my temperature literally rising. Felt like my forehead was just glowing. Maybe you remember your palms got sweaty 
or you got very anxious. Maybe you remember your heart rate begin to accelerate. Maybe you remember your fists beginning to clench as you just sort of tensed up and tightened up. Look, in this situation where Jesus is talking with these religious leaders in Jerusalem, this is a direct confrontational situation. This is not people talking behind each other's back. This is not an anonymous letter. This is not, let me give you some constructive criticism. This is not even the playground banter that you may experience in elementary school or middle school. This is Jesus and a group of men in Jerusalem squaring off in the midst of a massive crowd of people there to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and they are throwing bombs back and forth. And it may be strange for you to think about Jesus engaging in this sort of behavior. Nothing that he's saying is mean-spirited. Nothing that he's saying is not true. But it very much is confrontational. I just want you to see the back and forth. In verse 41, they say to Jesus, We were not born of sexual immorality. You understand what they're saying here, right? There was questions about Mary and Jesus and Joseph and the whole thing. And they're sort of insinuating very publicly, hey, look, we know where you come from. We, we know what happened there. We know how Joseph tried to cover the whole thing up. And they say this line, we have one father, implying... You're not even sure who yours is. You've got multiple. You've got this guy. You've got that guy. They're insulting Jesus. They're shaming Jesus in this culture. And Jesus fires right back. He's been hinting at this idea of you're acting like your father. You're acting like your father. But he never comes out and says it until you get to verse 44. And he says, you are of your father, the devil. I just want you to try, if you can, to picture the tenseness in this situation. Massive crowd of people, Jesus and the religious leaders squaring off. They're not talking behind each other's backs. They're not passing notes or just sort of throwing out silly insults. These people are in a serious conflict. And they are saying very serious, insultful, hurtful, mean-spirited things about Jesus. Jesus is saying very true things about them and their hearts. He's pulling back the curtain and exposing them. The entire situation is very, very tense. But if you listen to this conversation, it's more than just sort of arguing with insults. If you listen to what Jesus is saying to these people, he's actually talking about very important truths as it relates to sin and salvation. And that's what we talked about last week. That's what we're going to talk about this week. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Shouldn't surprise you that this whole conversation centers around the same general topic. Jesus is talking about sin. He wants them to understand the truth about sin. And he's talking to them about salvation. He wants them to understand the gospel. And so I want you to see a few of those truths this morning. Number one, Satan is real. He hates God and he hates God's people. Satan is real. He hates God and he hates God's people. Historically, theologians have loved to speculate about Satan. You can read all sorts of books. You can Google search. You can Amazon search. And you can find all sorts of Speculation, and that's all that it is. It's nothing more than speculation about Satan and the demons. The Bible does not answer all the questions that you and I may have about Satan. We just need to reckon with that. But in a modern, anti spiritual, anti supernatural culture, we also need to reckon with the fact that the Bible, from beginning to end, assumes that Satan is real, that he hates God. 
and that he hates his people. Jesus certainly operates under that assumption. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Look what Jesus says about Satan in verse 44. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. A murderer and a liar. That's the picture you see painted about Satan from beginning to end, right? Scrub your brain of the comic book character with red tights and a tail and a pitchfork. It's just a cultural construct. It's silliness, right? Get out of your mind all the silly stuff you saw in a horror movie where there was demon possession and Satan was involved. Like, get all that garbage out of your brain, What Jesus wants you to understand, what he wanted these people to understand, is Satan is real, he hates God, he hates his people, he's a murderer, and he's a liar. It was that way from the beginning, with Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan came, and despite what God had told them, do you remember what Satan told them? He looked them in the eye and he said, you will not surely die. You won't. God is wrong and I'm right. It was a lie. Adam and Eve bought that lie, and it cost them their life. It cost them true life. He's a liar and a murderer. You see Satan show up in the book of Job. And in the book of Job, there's back and forth. It's fascinating, back and forth between Satan and God. And he comes into God's presence, and he begins to slander Job. And by slandering Job, what he's really doing is slandering God. Satan is saying false things about Job. He's saying false things about God. And the design and the desire behind all of it is that he wants Job dead. He's a liar and a murderer. Think about Jesus when he's tempted in the wilderness. Jesus facing off with Satan in the wilderness. Satan says to him, just make bread and eat. Just take the easy way out. You're hungry, you can do it, go for it. Then he ratchets it up even more at the end of the temptation experience and he says to Jesus, if you will just bow to me, I'll give you the nations. He knew what Jesus was there to do. He He was there to die, to rescue and to ransom a people, a multitude, a crowd from every tribe, every nation, every language, every tongue. That was the goal. Satan knew that and he said, I can give you a shortcut. You don't have to suffer for those people. You don't have to die for those people. I can just give them to you. He's a liar and he's a murderer. Think about the the book of Acts, the early church. There's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a piece of property. They decide they're going to give some of that money to the church. People have been doing this. It's very common in their church family at that time. And they believe a lie. The text says, Acts 6, that Satan filled their hearts. Satan's involved in it. And the lie they believe is, we will be happy if we keep some of the money, but we make everyone think we gave all the money. The money we keep will make us happy, and the reputation we gain will make us happy. And so we're going to give some of it and keep some of it, but we're going to tell people we gave all of it. They're going to think we are the best. They're going to think we're better than Miss Jerry. It was a lie. They're not better than Miss Jerry, and it wasn't going to make them happy. In fact, it led to their death. He's a liar. 
and he's a murderer. Jesus says, Satan is real. He hates God. He hates his people. And you need to understand he is a liar and he is a murderer. Peter says it like this, 1 Peter 5, 8. In your notes it says verse 18, but it's actually 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I pulled a video off Facebook this week. This is a video of somebody who went on a mission trip with Chris, and at the end of the trip, they were on safari. I've never been this close to a lion. I've been on safari a couple of times, never been this close to a lion in real life. That's just right there walking by the Jeep. You go and you see something like this and that big cat is just sort of strolling a few feet from you. I don't care how cocky you are this morning. I promise you, I promise you, if you're in that Jeep or that Land Rover or whatever and you see this cat walking, you're not getting out. You don't want anything to do with that animal. Nothing. And I promise you, I haven't been this close, but I've been a little bit further away, and it it makes your heart beat fast. I mean, you want to talk about your heart rate accelerating. You see these big wild animals, and you think, I am staying in the car. I just want you to contrast that with how I think we normally think about Satan. At our house, our garage is in the back, and so we have to pull down the alley and pull in the back of our house. And when I pull down the alley in the back of my house, we got a couple of cats that just sort of live in the neighborhood. And a lot of times we pull around the corner and my kids know the names of these cats and they have a home, but really they just kind of roam all over the place. And the kids say, oh, there's Walter. Ah, oh, there's Dottie. And they're sitting on the fence and they're looking at us. I, I got to tell you, not once have I been scared to get out of my truck on the driveway. There's Walter. There's Dottie. I mean, they're looking at me. And I know they're cats, which means if they were big enough, they would eat me. They're just not big enough. That's different than how you feel when you're in a safari and you see a lion walking beside the Jeep. And I'm afraid all too often we believe the cultural construct of Satan and we think about Satan as like the wild, feral cat sitting on the fence when you get home. And you say, I don't really want anything to do with him because he's probably got disease and he's probably wild and he might scratch me. You don't want anything to do with that wild cat. The biblical picture is not there's a wild, feral cat on the loose in your neighborhood. The biblical picture is there is a liar and a murderer who is prowling around seeking to devour people. And you and I just need to reckon with that. We need to understand what we're actually up against when we think about Satan. Jesus, as he's talking about sin and salvation, he wants us to know Satan is real. He hates God. He hates his people. Second, sin makes us bad. It makes us dead. It makes us slaves. And number four, we're going to add to it, it also makes us satanic. And that may make some of you really uncomfortable. Like even to think about it, even to write it down, you may say, eh, I don't know. And we talked about these other ideas last week. The Bible describes sin as wickedness and immorality. It makes us bad people. We've fallen short of God's glory. We've fallen short of his standards. It makes us dead. We looked at Ephesians 2 and we'll read it in just a minute. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. The wages of sin is death. It makes us slaves. Jesus said that last week in the, the passage that we looked, about, looked at. He talked to these Jewish leaders and he said, look, if you practice sin, you're a slave to sin. It promises you freedom, but really it just enslaves you. And then Jesus ups the ante this week. And he says, those of you who are practicing sin, 
Not only are you doing bad things, not only does that sin make you spiritually dead, not only does it create spiritual bondage in your life, but it also makes you like Satan. You're acting like Satan. The word for that is you're satanic. Look how Jesus says it. Verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Like father, like son. Like mother, like daughter. You, Jesus says, looking at these men, you are acting just like Satan. He's a liar and a murderer. And you're saying things about me that are not true. You are lying and you are seeking to kill me, to put me to death. And in doing that, you are acting just like Satan. Look, in 2019, some of you hear this, sin makes you satanic and you think, that's a little extreme, isn't it? Don't we know more about human nature and psychology and sociology and all the rest. Isn't it a little bit antiquated? Isn't it a little bit extreme to say that doing sinful things makes you like Satan? Part of the problem for us in hearing this is that we're used to euphemisms. You know what a euphemism is? I'll give you a definition here. Euphemism, euphemism a mild or indirect word or expression substituted for one considered to be too harsh or blunt when, when referring to something unpleasant or embarrassing. And I throw out this idea that sin makes you bad and it makes you dead and it makes you a slave and it makes you satanic. And our culture sort of hears that and says, eh, that sounds a little harsh. That seems a little extreme. That seems a little bit radical. And it's because we're used to euphemisms. People like me are not bald. We're follically challenged. <laughs> sounds better, right? Bald. I'm offended by that. So don't call me bald. If you know somebody who is not the smartest person that you've ever met, you might say, that person's a few sandwiches short of a picnic, or that person's elevator doesn't go all the way to the top. You're not just coming out and calling them stupid, but what you're saying is, eh, you know, you're softening it a little bit. Politicians, they don't lie. They come back at some point and they say, I'm sorry I misspoke. I'm sorry I misremembered that situation, right? It's not a lie. There was a, a very public example of this a few weeks ago. Some United States soldiers killed uh, al-Baghdadi, the, the head of ISIS, and the Washington Post ran a story and said, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, austere religious scholar, has died. An austere religious scholar. This is a man who is responsible for the deaths of thousands and thousands and thousands of people for horrific, heinous things. And they describe him, of all the ways you could describe him, as an austere religious scholar. Look, in this story, there's certainly ways you can say things without ruffling feathers, and Jesus is just not trying to do that. He's just not interested in softening the blow. He's not interested in taking the edge off. They look at Jesus and they say some pretty intense stuff about him, but he looks right back and he says, you are of your father, the devil. You are acting like Satan. You know, I read one commentary this week. You could tell the author was uneasy with it. 
uneasy with this idea that sin makes us satanic, thinking that's, that's just a little bit maybe over the top. And so his way around it was saying that only applies to the people that Jesus was talking to in the moment. It doesn't apply to us. Whew, thank goodness, that was close. Just applies to the actual guys who were lying about Jesus and trying to kill Jesus. There's just one problem with that. There's other verses in the Bible that say the exact same thing about us. Look at Ephesians 2. We read this last week. We'll read it again this morning. Paul says, you were dead. We talked about that. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You understand this, this language of following is saying, you're just in lockstep, right? These sins promised you freedom. All you're doing is following along with the world. You're a slave, And it's not just that you're a slave to the world in these sins. You're actually a slave to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan. You're following Satan in your trespasses and sins. And he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you're a sinful person, these things are true. Sin makes you bad. It leaves you spiritually dead, unable to bring yourself back to life apart from God's grace. It makes you a slave, unable to free yourself any more than the Hebrews could have freed themselves from slavery in Egypt. And it makes you like Satan. You are never more like Satan than when you are sinning. That's Jesus' point. Number three. Here's the good news. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone, not spiritual accomplishment or religious pedigree. There is salvation, and it comes by God's grace through faith, not by anything that we can do or anything that we have inherited. Right? These guys say, we're offspring of Abraham. Verse 33, we're offspring of Abraham. Verse 39, Abraham is our father. And Jesus acknowledges that to a degree. I know you're offspring of Abraham. I know there's a genealogical tie. Verse 39, Jesus pushes back and he says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. And it sort of begs the question, what is that work? What would it have looked like if they followed the example of Abraham? And to figure that out, you've got to go back to the story of Abraham, and you've got to go back to a verse like Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord. What an interesting verb. You see it in the Gospel of John a hundred times. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. When God showed up and talked to Abraham, he was a pagan worshiping statues. God appeared to him and revealed himself to Abraham. It was an act of free grace. Abraham did not deserve it. And God did not appear to Abraham and say, do X, Y, and Z, and you can be on my team. He believed. What does it mean to believe? Well, it means you abide. You walk in it. You live it. It's it's a normal part of you. It's not a one-time thing, but it becomes part of your life. It means there's affection. There's love. We've talked about that this morning. Abraham believed the Lord. He looked forward in faith, and God counted it to him as righteousness. You and I look backward 
in faith to the cross, and the Lord counts it to us as righteousness. Whether you're looking forward or backward, whether you're an Old Testament saint or a New Testament saint, this is the only way that you can be brought back into a relationship with God. It's not anything you can accomplish. It's not your spiritual pedigree. It's God's grace alone, and it's faith alone. You say, but my granddad was a great Baptist preacher. Doesn't matter. You say, but my mom is just like Miss Jerry. She taught Sunday school forever. It doesn't matter. You say, but I went to youth camp, and I had this experience at youth camp 25 years ago. It was powerful. Doesn't matter. You say, but I've been baptized. I got wet. I went down, and they brought me up. I've been baptized. Doesn't matter. You say, but my name is on the roll at my church. I'm a member of this church or that church. It doesn't matter. You say, but I try to live my life like a good person. I try my best to be nice and honest and moral and upright and upstanding. And I try to do good by other people and do right by other people. It does not matter. All have sinned. All of us. It makes us bad. It makes us dead. It makes us slaves. It makes us like Satan. And the only way that we can be saved is through grace, through God's grace, through faith. And that faith centers on Jesus. That's the last idea. Believing in Jesus is the only way sinful people can have a relationship with God the Father. You see the same ideas over and over and over again in the Gospel of John. In John 14, 6, Jesus says it like this. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am have a way back to the Father. I have life to offer you. I have truth that will set you free. But no one can come back to the Father. No one. There's no other way. There's no other life. There's no other truth except through me. Jesus says the same thing in our passage. If you look at John 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I'm here I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. The Father sent me. I'm here on his behalf. This is not just a coincidence that I'm here. This is not just an accident that I showed up. I am here because the Father sent me to seek you and to save you and to give you life. The Father has provided a way for you to know life, but there's only one way for you to know it. John said it, John 20. We've read it already. It's worth reading again at the end of the Gospel of John. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Can we put that one up? Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. They're not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, not just believing that there is a God, Not just believing that you're you're trying to do your best and it's all going to work out in the end. But believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. That by believing like that, you have life in his name. Believing. Believing so that you abide in his word. You walk in it. You live in it. Believing so that you love him. The one sent by the Father. It's not just an intellectual thing, but your heart loves the gospel and rejoices at the good news. You know, we start off talking about insults. Christian people, followers of Jesus, 
should never be known as people who cannot control their tongues. Too often we're known for that. Christian people should have self-control. We should be people who can control our tongue. Christian people should not be known, followers of Jesus should not be known for throwing insults at other people, either to their face or in anonymous letters or on the playground in third grade or constructive criticism, let me give you some positive feedback. I mean, none of that. We shouldn't veil our insults in any of those ways or try to soften them. We should not be people known for our sharp tongues. But we've always been known for an offensive message. It doesn't mean that we get to be offensive people. But it also doesn't mean that we apologize and feel awkward about the offensiveness of our message. And what we're saying this morning, what Jesus said 2,000 years ago is what we believe today. There is one way, only one way, for sinful people to be made right with the Father. There's just one way. That's always been offensive. When the Hebrew people came out of Egypt and they came into the, the polytheistic culture of Canaan, and they walked in and they said, we serve Yahweh, the one true God. All these other gods and goddesses are pretenders. That was offensive. Right? The, the Canaanite peoples looked at them and they were offended by that. They said, that's so narrow-minded. Look, the rest of us, we live and we let live. We have this spiritual buffet of gods and goddesses. And you come along and you take some of this one and some of that one. And you mix and you match. In the Hebrews, at least in their better moments, said, no, we worship Yahweh. No one else. Just one, because he's the only true God. That was offensive. In the early church, Greco-Roman culture, these new Christians find themselves in a, a society that celebrated a diversity of religious experience. You could go to this temple and partake in the feast. You could go to that temple and burn incense to Caesar. You could just sort of mix and match. It was no different than ancient Canaan. And the early Christians walk into that culture and they say, you know what? We believe there's only one God. And we believe the only way to know him is through Jesus Christ. We're not going to burn incense to Caesar at the, the temple cult. We're not going to do it. It's not true. It's not real. It's not the way that you can be made right with God. We're not going to do that. We're not going to go to those feasts and those celebrations at that temple. It's, it's not right. It's not true. And they said, we only will serve the true God and we serve him by believing in Jesus Christ. And people looked at that and they said, well, that's so narrow-minded of you. Everyone else is just sort of live and let live and mix and match and take some here and take some there and we all just get along. It's not a big deal. And in their best moments, these early Christians said, no, those things are not true and this is true. Those things lead to death and bondage. This leads to life and freedom. And we will only serve the true God. And we only believe in Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4, 12, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we might be saved. Paul to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and one mediator between God and men. It's the man, Jesus Christ. That's it. It's exclusive. And never, never, never does it give us license to be offensive people. But never, never, never do we have to apologize for a message that the world sees as offensive. Because what the world sees as offensive, you and I see as gospel, as good news. We see it differently than the world because we understand our sin. 
We know how far short we have fallen. We understand who God is in his holiness, and we understand God did not have to provide any way of salvation. But he did. He sent the Son, and the Son came to seek us and to save us. He came to provide a way for us to be brought back into relationship with the Father. And our desire is not to to feel awkward about that message, not to apologize for that message, but to celebrate it, to abide in it, and to love it.